Jewish audio on Chabad.org. I wanted to take a moment to focus on the names of Mordechai and Esther again. We mentioned, I'm not going to say briefly, we mentioned it at some length, but I want to go, I want to go over those names one more time. Because the Megillah makes a big deal out of it. The Megillah introduces them. It says we have a man, Ishihudi, his name is Mordechai, and the Torah, the Megillah is telling us that he raises Hadassah. And Hadassah, he Esther. So with regard to the name Mordechai, there is a very interesting Gemara that says, it's found in Masechet Chulun, on page 139, the Gemara says, There was this man named Papunoi, he used to ask the sages questions. And he asked of Masna, he said, everything has to be in the Torah. Everything has to be in the Torah, I mean the five books of Moses, Chamisha Chum not only our Taryag mitzvahs, not only the 613 mitzvahs, which are the totality of our mitzvahs are found in the Torah, but all of Jewish history is going to be in the Torah. And Purim is going to have to be in the Torah. So he said to him, Remez Where do we find Mordechai alluded to in the Torah? And he answered, he said, it's very simple. If you'll take a look in Parshas Kisisa, you'll see the Torah speaks about making something which is called Shevan HaMishcha, for lack of better terminology, anointing oil, oil that was used for the purpose of bringing either a commoner into some kind of sacred or noble purpose, like a Kohen Gadol, like a king. And you had to, it was a very special way to make this, with a unique quantity and set of ingredients that had to be dealt with in a certain way, you had to, you had to boil the, the, the water and the oil until all the water evaporated and all of the incense became part of the very fabric, if you will, or the actual the glue of the oil. So over there it says that you have to take the most choice ingredients. And then it says, the first thing is, it says, murdrar. Murdrar. Mur is translated in English as mirror. M-Y-R-R-E, I think, is the proper spelling. People who are involved in aromas <laughs> and ingredients of these kinds of things will know what it is. So, so mirror, it says mur dror. What does that mean exactly? Probably it means something like free of any toxins, which means pure in plain English. So you have to find the purest kind of mirror, pure mirror. Now, drar in Hebrew, in the Chumash, means to be set free. Like it says with regard to indentured uh, laborers, who are called avadim ivrim, who are stuck till the Jubilee. It says, ukurasam drar ba'aretz. You'll call, you'll proclaim liberty. That's the source of the liberty bell. That's in Philadelphia. It says, proclaim liberty through the land. It's a pasuk in the Chumash. It says, ukurasam drar ba'aretz. You'll call liberty, you'll proclaim freedom in the land. So the word drar means free. Which in this context, my understanding is that it's free of any kinds of toxins. So it's, it's, it's the purest form of mirror. So how does that help us in Mordechai? So the Gemara says, Umetargeminon, Unculus, renders it, Mira or Meira Dechaya. Now Meira Dechaya, if you say it ten times very quickly, it'll sound exactly like Mordechai. Now, interestingly enough, the Targum Shalmi and the Targum Yenison Ben Azil, who are the secondary Targumim, translations of the Torah, and actually contain much more overt commentary 
not just much as much only translation. Has they have they they call it uh, they use different terminology, but in Targum Unculus, which is the primary translation, it says that Murderar is Mira Dachaya. Mira Dachaya is Mardachai. That's what the Gemara says. So what does it what does that mean for us in our day and age, and and how do we understand the Megillah differently because of it? So I'm, I came across something fascinating. Uh, the, it's the early 30s, and the communist oppression of the Jewish faith is reaching a fever pitch. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe had already been incarcerated. He was supposed to have a death sentence, which was commuted, sent away to harsh labor, which he surely would have died in, as most rabbis were sent away to harsh labor. I know this very personally. My father never knew his grandparents. They, they died before the Nazis came along. The Russians took care of them. Communists. And the Rebbe's father was a valiant warrior against the, the communist regime. In fact, once the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe left Russia, there was no single figure who garnered as much support and as much attention from the Jewish community and was able to galvanize the Jewish community in the way that the chief rabbi of the city of Yakatirnislav, later renamed the Petrovsk, the Rebbe's father of Levi Yitzchak. So when, once there was a funeral. Well, Chassid had died, and uh, they asked the chief rabbi to please come and to officiate, to eulogize. The fellow's name was Mardachai. So the Rebbe's father said like this. He said that there are many Jews who celebrate the advent of communism. They think that this is going to free us from anti-Semitism. It's going to make all of us equal. Now we have a new socialist, a communist reality. And, and all of the ills of the Tsarist days are, are gone, and Jews will be just like everybody else, which our bitter experience thought was very much not like that. Many of those involved in the communist revolution were Jews, including one of Lenin's, one of his lieutenants. The man whose name was Leon Trotsky, who later wanted to replace Lenin, so Stalin killed him. <laughs> but he was a Jew. His name was Label. That was, that was his real name. He was descended from Chassidim, unfortunately. So anyway, the Rebbe's father is giving this eulogy, and he says that there are many people who utilize this opportunity to try to to galvanize the Jewish community, to inspire the Jewish community, to bring them into a, a greater devotion to Hashem, to Torah, to mitzvahs, which of course would be a zechus, an elevation for the neshama. So he says, you should know that this freedom and this liberty is not a good thing. It will not bode well for the Jewish people. It hasn't bode well, bid well for us and it won't bode well in the future. And he quoted this Gemara, the Gemara in Chulun, page 139. And he says, Mordechai min How do we know Mordechai where do you see Mordechai in the Torah? And he says the Targuminon, that the, the Targum is of Mordor, is Mordechaya, so that's Mordechai. He said the word Mor, if you vowelize it a little differently, it doesn't say Mir, which is an aroma or a spice, but rather it's Mar, which means bitter. So he says, you think you have Dror, you think you have freedom. It's a very bitter freedom. It's a very bitter price that we, the Jewish people, are going to pray, pay for this supposed enlightenment that communism claimed to be. So I, I, think, I think that's very, very interesting. I think it gives us perhaps an understanding of what the name Mordechai means then. You know that when the Jewish people were at the end of their 70-year exile, which is when the story of Purim happens, we were very assimilated. We were very much accepted. Many of the Jews never went back to Israel. In fact, I'll tell you a little secret. Most the Jewish people didn't go back to Israel. And amongst them, the spiritual nobility, the tribe of Levi, didn't go back to Israel for the most part. They stayed in Bavel. How did the story of Purim evolve? It didn't come out of a vacuum. 
It came out of unbelievable assimilation. And the Jews in the city where Mordechai lived were so emancipated that when Achashverosh made his great party, as we learned previously, guess who was invited? The Jews. And they had kosher food. Everything was kosher, if you wanted kosher. But they thought, well, people are going to look at us funny. We, we, have to, we have to be like everybody else. Very similar to today's day and age. An amazing freedom. An amazing openness. A society where Achashverosh, as we learned, did away with all the old stuffy mores. He removed all the aristocracy. He took all the old ideas away. So a Jew has a perfect opportunity now to be a part of things. It's like the communist revolution. In a way. And that was a very bitter freedom. And that's where Mordechai's name was. <coughs> this drawer, that freedom, turned out to be very bitter. And it almost, Sachman al-Islan, spelled the end of our people. So I, think, I thought that was a very interesting insight to share with you about the name of Mordechai before we, we move on. And I promised you I'd share something about Esther as well. So the previous class we learned about the, you know, the, the Megillah says that um, he raised Esther, who was Hadassah. We have this dispute in the Gemara. One opinion says her real name was, uh, was, was, was uh, Esther, and they changed the name to Hadassah. Hadassah was her nom de guerre. And then two of the opinions in the Gemara, no, no. Her real name was really Hadassah. But she needed a name, so that was the pseudo name that she chose, was Esther. Why is that relevant here? And, and anyway, if the name comes later, especially as we learn that some say that this is a name that was given to her by others, that he called her like, like, a, like a Greek goddess, like Venus. So why do we have to talk about it now? Why do you have to say that Hadassah is Esther? The Megillah should have said, and later when she was chosen as queen, then they named her Esther. Or when she was taken into the palace, then she was called Esther. Why do we have to begin the story with the idea that Hadassah is Esther? <coughs> now we learned before... <coughs> That the concept of Hadassah is, represents the righteous. As the Medrash Shabbos says, Why is her name Hadassah? And the Medrash says, Mahadassah Recha Matok, just like the Hadassah has a sweet fragrance, however, the berries are bitter, Tamamar, Kach Esther. The Esther had a sweet side and a bitter side. She was very sweet for the Jews, she was very bitter for Haman and the enemies of the Jewish people. But the, the, the Gemara tells us that this idea of, of Esther is the concept of the righteous. As the Gemara says in Megillah and Dafyud Gimel, that why do we call the Shema Hadassah al Shem Hatzadikim? By the name of the holy righteous. Shenikro Hadassim, which are referred to as Hadassim. And that's what the Pasuk says, Oymed Beina Hadassim, standing amongst the myrtles. Pasuk in the Song of Songs. So we have this idea of Hadassah meaning righteousness. And what does Esther mean? So there's another Gemara that asks, I know what Mordechai is minatayra. Esther minatayra minayin. How do I know where is Esther in the Torah? The Gemara says Esther in the Torah is in a Pasuk in which Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about the very, very harsh consequences of our misbehaving. About the very difficult and challenging and painful times of Galut. And he says there'll come a time va'anochi haster aster panai bayomahu. It'll come a time when God says, I will doubly conceal myself. Haster, aster. So the Gemara says, haster, aster, a double concealment? Where it's, what does it mean, a concealment of God's face? It's as if God doesn't care about us. We're supposed to be his beloved nation, so why are we getting burned in Auschwitz? Why are we getting blown up in, 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 in pizza shops, if Hashem is supposed to love us? 
What's going on over here? There's a nature of Galut that doesn't make any sense. And it seems as if God has abandoned his people. And that's Haster Aster. That was the story of Esther. It's a very difficult time. But Haster Aster doesn't say God's presence is not there. It says God's presence is concealed. Big difference. Big difference. God wants us to know that even in the height of the darkness, even in the depth of the concealment, he's always with us. Which is really the overriding message of the Megillah. That's why some maintain the whole Megillah is called Megillah Esther. The whole story of Megillah Esther is the story that God's always with us. Yeah, how come his name is not mentioned? Well, that's exactly the point. Where's the miracle? Yeah, there really isn't a miracle anywhere here. Uh, Achashverosh couldn't sleep one night. That's, that's about as far as we get for a miracle. I can't sleep all the time. <laughs> I got a mortgage to pay. I wake up middle of the night too. Is that a miracle? Nobody comes to read my, my, my bed, read me stories. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's the biggest miracle we have here. That Achashverosh, it says when, I, when that night, the person reading the Megillah raises his voice up, the king couldn't sleep. Okay, that's, a, that's about as miraculous, as dramatic a miracle as we get in the Megillah. Point being, that the Megillah is not full of open miracles. And that's why the simple halacha is that if you read the Megillah, every word read properly, but you read it out of order, layotzei didn't fulfill the mitzvah. Why? <laughs> why? Because there's no miracle then. The only way the Megillah has a meaningful message is if you read it in order. In order to understand that Hashem's presence is with us. And then of course the Baal Shem Tov says, if you read it out of order, meaning backwards, as something that was relevant 2,000 years ago, or 2,500 years ago, but it's not relevant today, and you also fulfill the mitzvah. Do you have to understand that this idea of Hashem's presence always being with us, and that the destiny of the Jewish people is in and of itself a miracle, that if you don't connect the dots, you will never appreciate or understand the miracle of our existence. And you need to understand the story of Purim is here and now, not a story of yesterday. So this is all contained within the name of Esther, right? Esther, Esther is a, a very powerful name, which as we learned, means concealment. So, the, the, the thing is like this, that if Hadassah means righteous, and Esther means concealment, we could understand this not only in a global way, not only over the panorama of history, or the Jewish people surrounded by the nations, many of whom are hostile to us. But Chassidus says we have to understand this in a personal way. How does it talk to me? What does it have to do with my own existence, my own personal relationship with God? So, the Rebbe explained a number of times, different my modem, that there's, there's a very, very powerful message that's being conveyed to a Jew. There's a part of you that's called Hadassah. There's a beautiful part of you. I'm not talking about physical charm and beauty. I'm talking about Neshama. It's a wonderful, beautiful soul that's at the core essence of every single one of us. It's wonderful. In heaven, it's wonderful. <laughs> How about here on earth? Oh, here on earth, I'm, I'm saddled with this body that has no interest in my spiritual concerns. <laughs> they tell a story once. There was a fellow who came to Lubavitch. He's a Balabatisha fellow, you know, very well-coiffed individual. And he was running and looking for shoe polish, Erev Shabbos. Lubavitch was a stick-in-the-mud village. Probably seven months a year you, <laughs> you walked in mud. He's looking for shoe polish. So the Mechol Bliner, I think it was, this great chassid, he sees this man running around like a scatterbrain looking for shoe polish, Erev Shabbos. He says, what is the problem? 
He says, for Shabbos, I have to, I have to polish my shoes. He said, Don Lubavitch, puts me in the cup, Nitishich. He said, here in Lubavitch, we polish our brains for Shabbos. We polish our head. We elevate our consciousness. We don't worry about what the shoes look like. You can have polished shoes. It's okay. It's a, it's a, a matter of perspective. It's like, what is life really about? But for most of us, the quality or the shine of our shoes is a lot more important to us than where our Nisham is holding. Let's be honest with ourselves. Like we, this is the world we live in. What we have for lunch is much more important with than how did our davening go today? Did I daven today? Didn't I daven? Did I do a mitzvah? Did I miss some mitzvahs? If I'm missing a button on my blouse or on my shirt, I feel like a fool. Everybody must be looking at me. I'm missing a button. How about you're missing a half a dozen buttons in your spiritual shirt this morning? Nah, come on. Tell me stories. Maizalach. Spirituality. It's fairy tales. I'm living in the real world. I'm living in the world of silk and cotton. I'm living in the world of wool. Ah, so wool, silk, and cotton, that's the real world. But the world of garments, of mitzvahs, of godliness, that's not the real world. There's this inner dissonance every one of us suffers from. It's, it's called life. Life, as a Jew, is filled with turmoil, even when everything is peaceful around us. <laughs> In fact, when everything's peaceful around us, then the Jews get the most meshuggah. They're all going to the shrink, and they have these issues and these problems. <laughs> yeah, you have nothing else. To, you have to wor- see, you have to worry about something. It's a long story, but I once met a fellow in Yerushalayim. It's been a, a, a Balchuva. <laughs> he told me what made him come to Yiddishkeit. What made him come to Yiddishkeit is there was a good friend of his who was an atheist, a well-known atheist. This guy taught law at a very prestigious university. And this was a fellow faculty member who taught, uh, I think he was a psychiatrist. And he said the fellow, the fellow um, had a practice besides his teaching career. And he noticed, it's very odd, that it was one evening in November when his practice would fill with Jewish patients and he never got home before midnight. It only happened one night every fall. He knows, like seven, eight, nine, ten years in a row. He looks back at his records. And it's never the same night. But there's always one night in November. So as a scientist, this intrigued him very much. And then he finally figured it out. It was Yom Kippur night. <laughs> and he said, the blew him away. Now this fellow who heard the story came home to Yiddishkeit. The other guy unfortunately committed suicide I heard later. Pashat, he wasn't ready to embrace God, wasn't ready, and the ideas, it was too compelling to him. Like, I don't know why he committed suicide, I can't talk about that. But that's, that's the tragedy what happened to him. He ended up killing himself. But the point is that a Yid who doesn't give at least some nourishment to the Neshama is going to go crazy. Because the Neshama is pulling inside. So you can ask the question, dear God, if you wanted to have nice pious Jews, then you should have left us in heaven. Or, like the Miraglum wanted, they wanted to stay in the desert. They said, you're going to have pious Jews in Israel. You have rebellious Jews in Israel. You have, have pagan Jews in Israel. Stay in the desert. Feed a manna. You'll have pious Jews. That's what you want, God, right? That you want to have people who daven, people who learn Torah, people who do mitzvahs, and just behave nicely. So put them in a nice little environment. Create this bubble for them, and then everything's going to be fine. Some people would like to recreate that today also. It's understandable. It's just wrong. <laughs> you can understand why somebody wants to live in a bubble. So this is, the Rebbe says, this is the story of the Megillah wants you to know that this, this, this notion of God's presence being concealed, but we have to still look for God's presence and that God is always with us. It's not just a story of our survival throughout an exilic odyssey. It's also a story of us, the Jewish people, in our own personal lives. People say, where's my miracles? Take a look at your life. Roll out 10, 20, 30 years. Imagine if certain things didn't happen in sequence. Where would you be today?
Everybody can see miracles. And the less you're sitting in a yeshiva, the more you see those miracles. The more you're out there, the more you see the hashgacha pratas, the stunning events, divine providence. You just happen to be and they just happen to say and somebody just happened to know. Amazing things. Amazing things. And that's the story of our life. We're busy putting the pieces together. But my hadassah, my beautiful neshama, is not so beautiful anymore. It's looking more and more like Esther and less and less like hadassah. So the message of the Megillah is that this is a mistake. It's a mistake to think that Hadassah has to become Esther. That you go into hiding. That you're not really yourself anymore. That Hadassah is forgotten. That Sadiqim are replaced with the concealment. The Megillah emphasizes by he omen as Hadassah, Mordechai. If Mordechai raised a, a, a girl, what do you think he raised her as? Talking like a, a Rebbe, a super tzaddik. How did he raise this child? He raised her to be Hadassah, right? He Esther, that's the same Esther. Which you read later on that Mordechai never, Esther, even when she was away, she was loyal, loyal to Mordechai. She never forgot who she was. And that's a message. Every one of us is Hadassah. He Esther, it's the same thing. You have to work at it. Well, Esther's going to have to work at it too, as you'll see. So, so the, moving right along, <laughs> this little introduction. Vayib Yisham Advar HaMelech the word of the king is, becomes heard, vidosai, and his law. Many girls are raised together to Shushan Habira, al Yad Hegoi, in the hands of Hegoi, who was the eunuch who took care of the woman. Right? It was a eunuch. The king didn't have to worry about him doing anything. The woman had no fear of him. And a very effeminate and neutered male. Esther is then taken to the house of the king. Al-Yad Hegai Shemer Hanashim. She's under the tutelage, under the protection of Hegai, who probably was a very big, strong guy. He just couldn't do things that men sometimes want to do. So everybody was safe. Everybody was uh, in, in, in a good position, ready to be seen by the king. Now, it's interesting to note that the, the, when we get introduced here, I think we started this verse already last time, but we get introduced here to Dvar HaMelech Vidasai. In Hebrew, Avav, in front of a word, means and. Right? So what is the and over here? What is the and? So actually, we take a look in something called the Targum Sheni, which is written at a later time. It's a very, very long and flowery translation that's filled with Midrashim, filled with not only interpretation, but much commentary as well. And it fills in many of the, the blanks that, that you wouldn't see otherwise. So the Midrash Sheni says, when they gathered many of the... Targum Sheni, pardon me, of these young ladies to Shushan Abida, to the hands of Hegai. And Mordechai heard that woman, pretty woman, are being snatched off the street and they're being taken away. So he took Esther and he hid her. He put her away, they went into hiding. And she wasn't allowed out anymore. Now, people knew about Esther. They didn't know who she was exactly, but remember, Mordechai was a senator. He's living in Shushan. There was no other Mordechai's around Shushan. It was the only righteous Jew living there. And they knew there was this beautiful girl. There was, there was rumors. You know, people know. There was, a, there was an exceptional beauty that was hanging around. So they went through the streets. And they come back. And there's a king. We know that there's an exceptional beauty there. But know where she is. Somehow, she's hiding. The king heard this. He flew off his handle. And he said, okay, one second. In that case, if, if somebody, if not, he thought everybody would come running. And most of them did, by the way. Medrashani says when the, when the people were coming from the harem to collect the woman, 
everybody was uh, putting on makeup and dressing in the nicest clothes, you know, take me, take me. And there was like, the professionals, they said, no, you're not pretty enough, not you. <laughs> like, they only choose, they really, you know, <laughs> this is for a king, it's got to be good. So everybody was running, but he heard that there's some, some beauty over there that nobody, nobody knows where she is now. So he made a second rule. He said, he put out a, a decree, which was life or death. You don't show up here, you're dead. And Akshvesh, of course, is very comfortable killing women. Doesn't, doesn't have a problem, he killed his wife. Not, he, he was pretty serious about this. And the Vilnagon says, that's the pshat, vidasai. And based on this paschag and of this medrashin, he says, that's the meaning of vidasai. That it was taka, a later thing. First he said, you have to come. It's a royal decree. It's, it's, so you break the law. What happens if you break the law? People break the law all the time, unfortunately. So they get a fine. They go to jail. They don't get killed. In Canada, unfortunately, even if you kill somebody, you don't get killed. But now, Achashverosh says, not only it's a law, but if you're not going to listen, you're not going to be. So that's a, <coughs> a different problem. And that's how you understand. Uvi Hikovitz Narasabis. Many of these women came together to, to Hegoi. And here was no choice. So it says, Vatilokach. Esther didn't volunteer herself. She was taken. She was arrested, if you will. She was taken to the, the, um, the king's harem. All right, so what happens now? Jewish girl, beautiful girl, taken into the harem. What happens? What, ha what happens when she arrives there? So the Megillah tells us something amazing happened. She finds favor in his eyes. She wins, she wins over his, uh, his, his favor. She, please, she pleases everybody she sees. People are, wow, this is a fantastic person. And everybody's into Esther. Everybody's excited about Esther. So she creates this immediate fan club. He quickly went and he ran to get all the cosmetics that were specially needed cosmetics to prepare for the grand evening that would happen only 12 months later. And her portion is he, has, he, he assigned seven women to help her, seven like uh, assistants that were going to help Esther. That was appropriate to be given from the king's house. And then he changed things around. As I say, changed things for the maidens also. For the best of the harem. For the best of this woman's dwelling. Now, this passage needs a lot of explanation, and um, we'll start with Rashi. Just get to some, some basics. So Rashi says, first of all, what does it mean, <laughs> he threw makeup onto her quickly? Was a, was a fast makeup job rather than a slow makeup job? What does it mean, what, is, what does it mean literally? So Rashi says, He went, when it came to anything related to Esther, any need that Esther had, he did it with tremendous speed. Call it in English, it's called alacrity. You know, waste a moment. Not like most of us live our lives. <laughs> most of us will always do tomorrow what could have been done today. Why? Because you could do it tomorrow. Why should you do it right this second? Except if you're really excited about something. When you're really pumped up and you're really excited, oh, and then you rush, you don't waste a moment, you do it immediately. So that's, that's how, we, by the way, we're supposed to do mitzvahs. That word zrizut, which is not often used in English. Lacrity is not a well-known word. But in, in, in Torah literature, it's a very important word. In fact, this is reason magdim mitzvahs. If you're a zoriz, if you're a person who's quick on the draw, who's really excited about it, you do it fast. 
So that's actually we're supposed to aspire to be zrizim, to rush to do a mitzvah. So that, that, that's what the word is, is well known in Hebrew. So Rashi uses that word. He took care of Esther's always in front of everybody else. So let's say, for example, they, there's a certain cosmetic, well, they get a delivery of certain cosmetics and it has to be given to all the women. You have to imagine there was like hundreds, maybe thousands of women, by the way, who were in this crazy kind of captivity. <laughs> they were like preparing for 12 months to spend the night with the king. Maybe you can be the queen. And by the way, once you're with the king, you can never leave again. You can't go and uh, tell the tabloids about your experience. <laughs> you're stuck. You join the harem. And you might end up in the kitchen. You might end up in the, as a secretary. You, you, could, you could end up in any kind of position. You might end up twiddling your thumbs and, you know, playing Candy Crush for the rest of your life in a harem. I, <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do over there unless the king decided, oh, you know what? I'd like to see her again. Well... Then, then you would be called to spend another night with the king. But you didn't get, there was nothing outside the king. That's it. You were dedicated unto the king afterwards for the rest of your life, for better or for worse. Anyway, these women were in, in this pre preparing to win this big beauty contest. So it would, it would be things they needed. And you know, there's always a lot of people. So what happens? There's, there's a pecking order. There's, there are lines, you know, who's first, who's second, who's third. Esther always got first. She always was the favored one. Whenever there was anything that had to be, to, to be done, says Rashi, Bishallah, Mimar, Bishallah, Mishal Kulan. Esther got first. Whether it was cosmetics, or dinner, or the massage parlor, massagist who came along, whatever else they had over there, Esther was always the first one. Always first. Hara'u Yaisla, now what does it mean, these, these um, seven maidens, who are, it's appropriate for her. Really? You had seven maidens just, just for being there and twiddling your thumbs? You have seven people to help you twiddle your thumbs? It's a fascinating concept. Rashi says, yeah, with Shursa, they should, they should minister, they're a server. Rashi says, every one of these girls, you imagine the industry that Achashverosh created over here? <laughs> the industry of Nebuch, these bored women who are desperately trying to look their best for their one big night, and they have seven people ministering to them. That's what it was. He created an entire economy, <coughs> a royal economy. <coughs> so that's how Rashi understands the pshat. And he says, Rabbi Seinu, darshu mashu darshu. A rabbis delve into this, and they understand, and they, they think this all because of deep meaning, and they, it is, uh, everything is emet in Torah, but on pshuta shal mikra, these seven women were there for the purpose of serving Esther, taking care of her needs. So, what, what do the Chachamim say? The Gemara says in Megillah that Esther was in a very weird state here. She didn't get to have a calendar anyway, and they didn't have calendars, printed calendars in those days. And like life revolved around beauty treatments and certain kinds of food and diets, and it was like there was nothing else. It was a skin-deep life. And you could lose track of time. How is she going to know when is Shabbos? It sounds ridiculous to you and me, but they were in this world when nothing else mattered. So Esther, what she did is she named each one of these girls. She gave them a different name. And she knew which girl would come. She knew when it was Erev Shabbos and she knew when it was Shabbos. She did one for each day of the week. How could seven, let's say the girls did her nails. Seven girls doing one pair of nails? You go with sugar. Like, how many helpers could you have? Right? It's enough to drive anybody crazy. Well, one person every day. I guess one person was ran ragged and then to have six days to recover and somebody else got ran ragged. 
I didn't make this up, so don't look at, you know, this is what it says here. So that's the story with the girls. That's according to Rashi, and that's, like I said, Rabbi Seyna Darshu, Darshu, that this was the idea of the, of, the, of the different days of the week, so Esther could remember to, uh, to remember which day of the week it is. The Medrash also says something very interesting, and this I find it fascinating. Because we think multiculturalism and doing away with, let's say, races and colors and backgrounds and ethnicities is this grand new idea. It's never been tried before. And if we could just you know, get past them. Well, all we need to do is destroy religion and destroy the notion of race, and then the whole world's going to be a very happy place. Right. It's been tried again and again and again. In the last century alone, we had the, the communists came and do it, Stalin came and did it, and he killed like 30 million people. And Hitler, Yamach Shemay, he was very into race. But they had to be a superior race, and a higher race, and a lower, but no God, no religion whatsoever. And who we know what Hitler did, and Pol Pot, and Mao Zedong, and all these other big tzaddikim, with no religion, what they did, the evils they did to the world in, in the 20th century, maybe unparalleled in history, how many people were killed in the 20th century in the name of this atheistic, atheistic concepts, these atheists. But these Chachamim, only uh, 14 years into the new century, are clamoring now for a world of peace by getting rid of religion. Very short memories. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. So how, how, why am I saying this? Because Hara'uya Islam means, the Medrash says, that the black girls had black girls work for her. And the Chinese girls had Chinese girls work for her. And the Indian girl had Indian girls working for her. And the Japanese girl had Japanese. And the South Asian, everyone, that the girls who worked were exactly like the girls who they brought in. That means Akashverish liked all kinds of girls. He didn't like only Aryan girls or the, you know, blonde girls or blue girls or yellow girls. He, lived, but he had all, a very wide array of taste. Every, every beauty in the world, Akashverish would decide which one was it going to be. And he made sure that it was very multicultural. Right? All the mosaic, all the tiles were perfectly matching. Everybody was, they're ethnic, you know, the, the Italian girl, the Italian girls helping her, etc., etc. <coughs> anyway, Rashi doesn't talk about that, but that's what the measure says. So, Ibn Ezra has quite a bit to say over here. He says, what was this kindness that she found favor in everybody's eyes? What was, what was the favor? So he says something interesting. Ibn Ezra says, if you look at the word Vatisa Chesed, you see grammatically, it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Sometimes you meet somebody, and you're very taken. They're very charismatic. For a day, for a week, for a month, you get over it. You know, you get over it. With Esther, the people were taken by her, and taken, and taken, and taken, and they, they couldn't get enough of her. Batisa Ches is not one time. It was an ongoing thing, says Ibn Ezra, whose emphasis is on, is on, is on grammar. And he says, HaChesed Tisa Ima. The kindness, the favor, the charisma, it went with her. It, it embraced her. It carried her. It was like an aura she had around her. Lo Yasa Especially, you know, everybody has downtimes. Not everybody looks uh, fantastic at 6.30 in the morning. Esther was always graceful, always had charisma. Vayivahel, Rashi, Ibn Ezra says, yeah, swiftly. Everything was done. When Esther needed something, it was done right on the, right, right on the dot. You can imagine, you had a, a house full of complaining women. You think that, that these eunuchs did everything everybody wanted right away? Even your husbands don't even do everything you want right away. You think this guy, he wasn't their husband, he was going to do everything they wanted right away? <laughs> Just because he was a eunuch, it doesn't mean he wasn't a man. He delayed, well, I'll take care of you tomorrow, next week, next month. But with Esther, right away, right away, everything was done. 
Manoiseha, her portions. It says Tamarukeha is the word means cosmetics. Manoiseha means portions. So he says, Ibn Ezra says, that means she received the finest and the, the most wonderful of foods, the delicacies. There's always portions, different portions. She got the best portions always. And then these seven girls who are working for her, oh yes, he says, that's a lashon as you do a result. Suitable or appropriate could mean a variety of things. He leaves it open. And then we get now to the point of yeshaneha. What does this mean? The word Yeshaneha shares a common root with the Hebrew word Shana, which means year, which is made of, every year is made of seasons. Seasons. A year is made of seasons. So spring, summer, fall, winter is a year. Seasons. So, and, and why? Because the nature of seasons is changes. Change. You go through the changes. That's why Shana is, you go, oh, we're back at spring again. I hope. <laughs> Soon we're going to be back at spring. And oh, that would be a nice, how wonderful would that be? And when, when you have changes, by the way, people also have a different kind of pleasure. Because something that's here today, but soon going to be gone tomorrow, you want to use it for every moment. This is just like a silly curio. But you know that there was the, statistically proven that people who own boats, right here in Ontario, up in the lakes, they use it more than the people who own boats down in Boca Raton, in Miami, or in Fort Lauderdale makes no sense whatsoever. They have maybe like two, three weeks of bad weather, of blackout, that you can't take your boat out. And it's not a lake. It's a nice ocean. Here, you barely get three months. Three and a half months, if you're brave. Four? Max. Max four months you can take your boat out. It's not even an ocean. It's just a lake. And you have to include the rain days in the little bit. You don't have, you know. Why? Because in Miami, why should I take my boat out today? I can take it out tomorrow. Here in Ontario, what do you mean? Tomorrow is winter again. I get, it's July. I smell the snow coming. You know what? Right? So the shinui, the changes, it brings the delight. Your people really enjoy the summer here. We, we Canadians, we live the summer. Nobody understands how we live the summer. Right? Because we also learn how to like winter. Listen, you know, Canada, hockey, we learn. You hear? You may as well get used to it. But the point is the idea of shinui. So why do people change? Why do people like, like changes? It's boring. It's boring. So you change it up. Do something a little different. Which brings us back to this Pasuk. So what did he change? He changed her. He gave her a face job. What does it mean? And then he, he changed up her Naris also? That doesn't fit. It says he gave the Naris the right helpers. Why would he change that? So he says, no. He changed everything for the better. What does it mean that he changed everything for the better? So Ibn Ezra says, changes, he kept making changes for the better. That's how it was with Esther. If there was anything that was a better product out there, Esther got that better product. This is what we call in English upgrade. Like when the iPhone upgrades. They add one more gig, they charge you $500, and you wait around line all night to be able to get it. Why? It's a change. It used to be black, now it's white. Then they make a purple one. They make a big one, then they make a little one, make an in-between one. And of course, everybody has to have all three. Etc., <laughs> etc. Et and we keep getting upgrades, right? You keep sending you upgrades, and if you don't upgrade, the program doesn't work. <coughs> so this is how Esther lived. She was living in the iPhone age. She was constantly getting upgraded. Lasas <laughs> Now, 
he is troubled. Ibn Ezra is troubled there. He says, upgrades are fine. But how could he have upgrades? She got upgrades for the good of the harem. How does that work? It sounds like an upgrade for the harem. It's not an upgrade for Esther. So, What does this mean? So the Ibn Ezra explains it like this. He says, even though they were in a system, usually you can't change systems. You can move to another place. But you're in the same system. I'm not going to call it a prison. Nobody suffered. It was a delightful existence. Every pleasure of the world was available. I'm sure they had wonderful, easy, soft lives. But they were stuck. Let's face it. Everybody's in a system. Okay? In the system, when you can't leave, it's not so exciting to be in the system. But a system's a system. So what could you do differently? Everybody's the same. Everybody, everybody, everybody's, you know, it's not that much fun to live in a, in a hotel. At a certain point, it's not fun anymore. You want to have your own place. You'll be a five-star hotel to live in. But you're all in the system. He says, no, no, no. You should know that even though Esther was in the system, things got changed for her despite the fact that she was in the system. Which could be understood in two ways. According to the Gemara, he kept changing her diet. He kept giving her better food. One is, Rav says it means he found out that she liked Yiddish food. So he started to bring her kishka and gefilte fish. And kashavarnishka. So everybody else was eating. Huh? He didn't know she was Jewish. We're going to find that in a minute. They didn't know she was Jewish. And that's actually why Ibn Ezra begins to talk about the fact that Mordechai did not tell, every, it shouldn't tell everybody. He probably is prompted by the Gemara. Because Ibn Ezra just, all of a sudden in his commentary, Rishanel starts to talk about the fact that Mordechai didn't tell anybody, which we're going to talk about in a moment. <coughs> that really doesn't come along until the next verse. So Rav says she got Yiddish food. Nobody knew who she was, but they found out she liked Kashavar Mishkes. Okay, fine. So he said, bring your special food. She got a special diet. It's kind of funny, right? You know, you go, you're in a cruise and they bring you kosher meals. And everybody around you is having these fantastic meals. And you have your little... I was never there, but I heard so many people. It's like, it's like torture, you know, look around you, everybody's having fun, and you little TV dinners, kosher ones. No, it doesn't say Yiddish. It's my... Um, <laughs> Does the word Jewish make it better? <laughs> they didn't, no, Yiddish wasn't there at the time. There was no gefilte fish, probably. I, I, I'll give you that. Chatzilim. Fine. Couscous. I'll tell you a little secret. There wasn't couscous either. All of this is modern, you know. Whatever it was, whatever Jews ate then. I don't know what they ate then. Whatever kind of, that was the kind of Jewish style food, he got started to get her kosher food. It was probably kosher actually. Michael Yehudi means probably got a kosher food. He found that. She likes his diet. Funny how nobody knew about it and it didn't tip off anybody she was Jewish. But that, that's what Rav says. Shmuel says, absolutely not. They brought a lobster. They brought her non-kosher food, caviar, and pork, or whatever you want. Doesn't mean she ate it. In fact, according to some uh, commentaries in the matter, she gave it to the girls to eat. They were the happiest girls in the house because they were getting the best food. First of all, they didn't have to look their best. They were not on a perpetual diet. They could care less. And, you know, usually they get the, 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 the scullery maids. You get second. She was giving them all the food. So they loved Esther. She was fantastic. <laughs> and I got to tell you, this is the funniest one. The Gemara finishes off. That what did they give her? They gave her zeroinim. They gave her seeds to eat. In other words, they put her on a crazy diet. <laughs> why? Well, why? Why would you put her on a crazy diet? So we, we soon see that he right away had a premonition that this girl was it. She was it. He knew, he knew. Hey, hey guy took one look at her. He said, this is the queen. 
he wanted to make sure she got the job. So he put her on a Meshugana diet to make sure she would be as attractive as possible to make sure, because he was convinced he was, he was rooting faster. Officially, he could be rooting for anybody. But anyway, that's just my understanding of the Gemara. The Gemara says he ate seeds. By the way, that's why some of the Hamantashan, you know, they're filled with little mun poppy seeds. That's where the minute comes from. Because the Gemara says that Esther ate poppy seeds. She had nothing to eat, Nebuch. She was, she was no kosher food. They were giving her this delicacy. She ate poppy seeds. Right? No wonder she was a size 2. <laughs> she was eating poppy seeds for 12 months. Now, Ibn Ezra, maybe because of this Gemara, goes off on a whole tangent now, it seems. Because we don't hear about this till later on. Only in verse 10 do we hear about that Esther doesn't tell anybody. But Ibn Ezra begins right here. And he says... You know, let's, let's learn verse 10 before we go back to Ibn Ezra's comment. We'll see what Rashi says also. By the way, Vayishanea, Rashi just says, she knows, so he changed her. So some understand the Pshat and Rashi, he gave her the best suite. He gave her the presidential suite. He changed her where she was. And generally understood that he changed, everything was changed for her. As, you know, you go to a hotel, you got a decent room, but you want to upgrade. <laughs> you know? Esther got every upgrade possible. She got all the upgrades. So you're still stuck in the system, by the way. Still stuck in the system. The rental car company can't give you cars they don't have. Say, so could you upgrade me and give me a Lamborghini? And the guy says, listen here, we can give you a luxury car. We don't have Lamborghinis in stock. Sorry, we, we don't care. So give me an upgrade. She was stuck in the system. Was Latoyev based on Nashim? Did she live the most amazing, opulent life? No, she's stuck in based on Nashim. She's stuck in a harem. But the best was possible in those circumstances, she got every upgrade in the book. Whatever, in the best way that it could have been. And Esther is stuck in a palace now. Now we know about Esther, we find out about what, it, how, what was her modus operandi. Lohigida Esther's ama. She doesn't say her background, her ethnicity, her nation. She doesn't talk about where she comes from. Vesmelarata doesn't say where she's born. Why not? The most normal thing. A bunch of women together. I mean, somebody they had some kind of conversations had to happen. No, no, nobody talked. It's not human. They probably did a lot of talking. All kinds of, even though they all felt they were each other's competition. Still, you know. Still, so you got to talk a little. Esther doesn't speak a word. She steered us away from the conversation. They have no clue. Nobody knows where she's from. Why? Because Mordechai said, don't tell anybody where you're from. Your new name is Esther, and that's it. Or whatever. It's not important where you're from. Where are you from? She smiled. No answer. Now, this is really a mystery. Why did Mordechai not want Esther to tell anybody? Why? What did, what did he know? Like, wh wh where was this going? So, <coughs> Rashi simply says, Mordechai was doing his best to try to get Esther's freedom. So he said, who wants to marry a street urchin? Who wants to marry a, a child who was left on somebody's doorstep? People who don't know where they're from usually left on somebody's doorstep. He says, Wait, who are you? I'm, I'm adopted. That's true, she was adopted. But where are you from? Oh, I don't know where. What does that mean? It means I'm a nobody. I, 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 have, I have no, no moorings. I have no foundation. I, I'm, I'm just like a... It's, it's, it's in a way, that it's the most embarrassing thing. I have a nation, parents who abandoned me. So Mordechai said, this is going to be a great strategy. You're not even lying. You were adopted. You say you were left on the doorstep. And I'll send you free. He said, she'im yadu. If they would find out that they would find that she's from a kingly family, a, pre, a, a family of nobility, <coughs> then for sure they would do their best to keep her there. 
and Mordechai, remember, wants to get Esther freed. He doesn't, he's not happy about this. He doesn't know there's going to be a decree, and you need to have a queen in the palace to save him. He has to get Esther back. There was no choice. She went under the, the, the threat of death. That's the simple shot. It just makes simple sense. That was a strategy. Ibn Ezra is not so clear. He doesn't have, he's not so comfortable with that. He says, some people say that Mordechai didn't tell didn't allow her to tell anybody, told her not to tell anybody. He was afraid that she would take her if she knew, oh, you're from the Jewish exiles. You know, it's a funny thing. In as much as they hate us, sometimes still, you know, Jewish ancestry, not, no Jews, and Jews are not good, but Jewish ancestry is uh, fascinating, you know. Oh, you have some Jewish blood too. Well, very interesting. Says, you know, officially it was a multicultural society. Oh, look at that. For the Jewish people. Oh, you know, you're from the, from the, from the noble people. The, yeah, oh, very interesting. So this would be another reason to keep her, which is very similar to what Rashi says. Other, but the, the, the truth is, though, that the Ibn Ezra sounds more like the other way around. It sounds like Ibn Ezra is saying he wanted her to be the queen. That he was afraid that she, she wouldn't be taken in Yodashim HaGerla. So you look at a, careful, a more careful look at Ibn Ezra, it seems he's saying very different from Rashi. Rashi says, don't tell anybody because it will take you. Ibn Ezra says, oh no, if they find that you're Jewish, forget about it. They're not going to like that. You know, both are true in our society. Some people are so intrigued by that you're Jewish, you have Jewish answers. Some people say, Jew, forget about it. So Mordechai wasn't taking any chances over here. And Ibn Ezra says, there are those who maintain that Mordechai did want her to become the queen. He knew that she was beautiful. He knew that she was head and shoulders above everybody else. He didn't want to ruin her chances. So Rashi said, makes sense. Rashi said, makes sense. Ibn Ezra says, Mordechai wanted Esther to marry a Gentile, to leave the Jewish people? <laughs> I understand that. So he says, <coughs> others add to this, that this was a prophecy. Mordechai was a prophet. Or he had some kind of dream. Some kind of dream-like communication. And in this dreamlike communication, he, he had this premonition, that salvation would come to the Jewish people through her, that she was destined for something great, and that she had to be in a great position of influence and power because something great would happen. He didn't know what's going to happen. He knew something great was going to happen. And that's why he didn't want to upset the cart. He didn't want to do anything that would in any way change. However it's going to be, leave it to Hashem. But we're going to do everything we could. It's really quite fascinating if you think about that. It's, that means Mordechai, in a sense, almost pushed her. We'll soon see how the Gemara, this, this does corroborate what some of the Gemara says. Ibn Ezra doesn't like really this commentary, though, himself. He says, I think, he says, what makes most sense to me is, Mordechai did this because he knew she was going to be taken. She knew for sure. There's no question to him. And by the way, I want to interject here and tell you why I think, just me, little Mendel Kaplan, I could be wrong, but I think the reason Ibn Ezra doesn't follow the Pshat of Rashi is because if she was so beautiful and everybody was so taken by her, he had to know that, you know, lack of background or that she was adopted is not going to ruin her chances. Achashverosh didn't look for nobility. Achashverosh wasn't looking for lineage. In fact, if you think about everything we learned before, on the contrary, it's exactly what Achashverosh wanted. He wants to recreate a society. This would have been the most wonderful multicultural experiment. A queen from nowhere. 
So Ibn Ezra says Rashi's take here is way too simplistic. It's, it's almost like trying to, you know, to, 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 to stop a heart attack with a bandage. It's not going to work. You know, you know that she'll be taken. You think that not saying that she's Jewish is going to make the difference. It could work the other way around too. He'll, he may specifically take her. Remember, we talked earlier in the classes about Tachashverish's megalomania, about his destroying of the previous society. This, this will be perfect. And then he doesn't have to favor one nation over the other. He takes a girl from this nation, so this nation's happy. He have 126 provinces that are, have the nose bent at a joint. Here is nobody. She's everybody's princess. We're going to find out, actually. Esther is going to be the people's princess. Every nation said she's ours. It was the most brilliant political move, in fact. So therefore, <coughs> Ibn Ezra can't accept Rashi. He said, I can't say that. So then why wouldn't he tell? He says, well, one reason is that he didn't want to ruin the chances. He didn't want to ruin the chances? You mean he wanted her to be in that situation? How could that be? So Ibn Ezra says, he must have had some premonition. He must have known. That's the first half of the Ibn Ezra. Then the Ibn Ezra says that to me, the most compelling part is neither of these inter- none of these interpretations. Why? Because the truth is, he says, that the chances of this making a difference, of her being chosen as queen or not, are minimal at best. And this is like a major part of the story. That Esther doesn't say who she is. So therefore, Ibn Ezra's, what he prefers is that Mordechai prepared Esther for the likelihood of her becoming the queen how would she be able to observe Torah mitzvahs? She'll find that she's Jewish. She'll immediately convert her. And, and if she'll keep, she'll, she won't work on, on Saturday, say, so, what, you're not working on Shabbos? It could only be problematic. So the only way for a person like Esther to be able to keep her Jewishness was to hide her Jewishness. And then she would do her Jewish things, still hate, quietly, under, under the radar. The moment you mention you're Jewish, then everybody starts noticing. You know, it's like the story of the Moranos. The Moranos did things in the most surreptitious way. Nobody should know that they're Jewish. But the problem is they knew that they used to be Jewish. They were looking for those things. They had servants in these palatial homes. These people were billionaires, some of them. They had servants working in the home, working for the secret service, for Turkomari Mahashmeh, for the inquisitor, grand inquisitors. They said they told them what to look for. On Friday nights, that's the night to look. See if they gather Friday nights. See if they light candles. See if they look for certain things. So the moment you know you have something to cover over, then it becomes obvious. But if nobody's looking for anything, if nobody would have been looking for the, for, in the time of the Inquisition, if they wouldn't know they're Jewish, they could have got away with not being Jewish. The problem was they knew their background. So therefore, the Ibn Ezra says, the smartest thing was, you don't tell anybody who you are. You keep Torah pri- pri- privately. Would you, like some, would you like some steak? I'm vegetarian. How about I'm vegan? I'm on a diet. I eat seeds. You do? Yeah, I love seeds. <laughs> you love what? Yeah, stress, problem. <laughs> Seeds. This way, she, she want, she, you want to come work? You want to come? We're go, we're, 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 you know, we're going out. We're going to play. Nah, this, uh, I'm tired today. All right, she's tired today. You think people are going to keep it ca- counting? How come she's always tired on that seventh day, huh? huh? And then every once in a while, she's tired like in the middle of nowhere because it's like, you know, dumped it for something. Who's going to make the calculation? Who's going to figure that out? If will be, you become known, there's only one of two options, he says. Either the king is going to forcibly convert her or he's going to kill her. He's a killer. So, she's, she's not there because she wants to be there. She was forced to be in there. You're forced to be in that situation. Take your Judaism underground. This is not, by the way, the Moranos did not do the right thing. They should have left. 
But in a situation where you have no choice, so then keep your Judaism quietly. There are many stories during World War II of people who had to hide, and they did things quietly under, under the table. Whatever they could do, still hate, they did. Even Ezra says, you have to understand, Mordechai is one of the greatest Jews who walks the face of the earth at his time. He's the, the third of the, of the most prominent and noble Jews who goes up with Zerubbabel, who's a Sion of the house of David, to, to Shaltiel. And, and uh, when he, why did he go to Persia? Because he saw they came back to Israel, and the base of Migdash is not being rebuilt. And things are not working out as they thought they were supposed to. So Baal he went back to the, grand, the greater Middle East. He went to wherever it was the metropolis. Why? He had a, a job to do. Who's going to take care of the Jews? <laughs> Mordechai will stay in Me'asharim. And Zerubbabel will stay in Gula. Everybody will be in Yerushalayim. What about the Jews all over? Oh, they have to figure it out by themselves. Well, they kind of did. They figured out to be like everybody else. So Mordechai was like a, he's a shliach. He went out there to live in the craziest place amongst people who were most assimilated. He gave him the hardest mission. You go to Shushan. And there in Shushan, Mordechai lives. And uh, he's in Armin HaMelech. He's, he was so brilliant. He was so charismatic. And he was so influential. He was already a, a, appointed to a noble position. He was a senator. He's Bashar HaMelech. He says, <coughs> if not for this, the next Pasuk will never make sense. Which is, verse 11 is, Mordechai goes every day to see how Esther's doing. If he wasn't a nobleman, they would never let him in there. So this, Ibn Ezra gives us some wondrous background. And we see that Mordechai continues to worry about Esther on a daily basis. Lodas HaShleim Esther. He wants to know how is Esther doing, right? Like Shalom Aleichem. Nobody questioned. Nobody questioned. I guess he did it very surreptitiously. He didn't tell anybody who he is. And he had his ways. What's, what's going on with her? So he kept tabs. He didn't, he didn't forget about her. He continued to worry about her, he to think about her, and he did everything that he was able to do. Now, we'll finish off with a little malbum, and then we're going to talk, we'll, we'll conclude with a, a beautiful marshal of the Dubna Magad. So the malbum and these psukim, he asks, he says, uh, why does the Megillah have to tell us that all of a sudden Esther came and she became so charismatic and, and uh, everybody loved her and was so excited about her? So he says that the truth is she should have come in like a criminal. She was arrested. Everybody else volunteered. And she had to be forced. So usually when you're forced, and you're forced, you didn't come willingly, how is authority going to look at you? You weren't complying. No, but on the contrary. Esther came and she has this wonderful, uh, everybody loves her. She takes one look at him and the Malbim says she knew, that's it. She's the queen. This is the one. The Malbim explains. The, she, he did her the chesed. He said, I'm going to forget about the fact that she had to be forced in here. Forget about That's irrelevant. Because, he says, I believe that she is going to be the queen. And when she's the queen, I want to be remembered. I want to be the one who took care of her before she was the queen. So therefore, that's why he went running and getting everything for her so quickly and taking care of giving her the best portions. And Malba maintains that not everybody got seven maidens. So why did she get seven maidens? He said, because she's going to be a queen. And she's going to have to get used to our life, surrounded by people around her, ministering to her and taking care of her. Let's get her used to it now. In other words, he prepared everything for her. She was treated differently. She was treated in the harem as a queen in the waiting. 
That's, 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 that, 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 and that's why he changed everything about her. And he says, the Malbim says, the changes <coughs> means they got a double upgrade. They had an upgrade of diet and upgraded to the best sweets. She doesn't say where she's from. Why doesn't she say where she's from? What's, what's, what's up with this? So the Malbim says like this. That Malbim follows Rashi. He says that everybody, he, Rashi was still, ho Rashi says Mardukah was still hoping that they would forget about her. Okay, there's a small chance. So what? They'll take the smallest chance. Whatever chance could be, if there's a chance, they'll just, she, ah, she doesn't even have a background, she doesn't have a lineage. If that, if that will do it, so that'll do it. But whatever it's going to take, that, 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 will, that will be valuable. And the Malbim points out that Mardukah going there each and every day was a sakonic doilo was a tremendous risk that Mordechai took. He could have been put to death, such a thing. Going to play around in the, <laughs> the harem of the king. It's a very dangerous thing. But nonetheless, he needed to know what's going on with her. He wanted to know if she was being punished for the fact that she was compelled. She didn't go willingly. Or if she's going to be getting the boot. He was, a, he was afraid that if she would get punished, he could try to alleviate the punishment. He, he actually thought maybe he could do something to, to alleviate Esther's plight, to make things a little bit better for her. So this is that's the story of Esther being taken into the palace. I'm going to finish off with a very beautiful story, Bashal the Malvin. The Medr says, Ashrei Shemir Mishpat Eser Chesed Becholes. So there's a Medr about this. What does it mean? What does it mean, Shemirei Mishpat, who he who keeps Mishpat, he who keeps the laws? Eser Tzedakah Becholes, doing Tzedakah at all times. The Medr says, how could you do Tzedakah at all times? When you give tzedakah, you give tzedakah. When you're not giving tzedakah, you're not giving tzedakah. So the Medr says, okay, it talks about somebody who adopts somebody. Takes them in. So at every moment, they're living off your kindness. So the Medr says, what? The, the blanket doesn't fall off at night, meaning at every moment they're benefiting. There's got to be a time in the middle where they're not benefiting. What do you mean? Mecholes. And the Medr concludes that this is talking about Mordechai, who was Shemri Mishpat, great Jewish woman. And he was, what does what it mean doing tzedakah b'chalais? The, the Medrash already said it can't be referred just simply to the concept of adoption. So the Dubna Magad explains like this. He says that you know tzedakah, it depends not so much on how much you gave, but on the recipient. For example, you gave $5 to somebody who was starving, and they were able to sustain themselves with those $5 is much more valuable than giving somebody $500 who didn't change their life. You know, they got a coat. That's very nice. But the other person was dying. Here you saved a life. Here you warned somebody, which is more potent. Where did you get more bang for your buck? Obviously, the first case, the $5. You have to have like a zuchut. You have to have like a merit with tzedakah. You have to hope that your money is going to, you know. So he said, Mordechai did the greatest tzedakah of all time because he adopted Esther. And he raised Esther. And he took care and made sure that it should be an Esther. If, and, and what happens later? The entire Jewish people are imperiled. And the entire Jewish people are faced with genocide. And who saves the whole Jewish people? Esther. Who's ultimately responsible for that? Mordechai. Mordechai is responsible. And because Mordechai is responsible for that, because his act of kindness, he set something in motion, which did chesed, b'cholais, at every time, meaning it saved the entire Jewish people, then that's the greatest act of tzedakah. So you ask me the question, in that case, the Megillah should be called Megillah Mardachai. Why is it Megillah Sester? 
And the answer is something very similar to what I spoke about at Shabbos, because she had Mesiris Nefesh. Like it says with the Aaron, right? It was called Betzalel. Betzalel, it says, Vayas Why? Mephisha Masar Nafshi Rashi says, because he sacrificed himself. It wasn't he was the only one who did it, but he put himself his life on the line. At the end of the day, who put the life on the line? Esther. When you put your life on the line for something, figuratively and literally, on both levels, when you really throw yourself into it, you make it your business, then you get the credit. And that's why the simple reason that the Megillah is known as Esther, and Esther is the primary hair, when it's Mordechai and Esther, but it's Megillah's Esther until the end of time. Okay.